With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. At Bed365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. What up? It's the Crossover Pod, Friday edition. We are coming up on a very sad anniversary. This Wednesday, January 26th, will mark two years since the helicopter crash that killed Kobe Bryant, his daughter Gigi, and seven others. I wanted to remember and celebrate Kobe's life in some way on this podcast that felt appropriate, and I can think of no better way than to bring on my guest today, Mike Sealski, who is the author of a new book about Kobe's life, but especially Kobe's formative teenage years. And Mike's book takes us there in a way that I don't think any other book has to date. And there have been, of course, a lot of books about Kobe Bryant. The book's called The Rise, Kobe Bryant and the Pursuit of Immortality. It takes us into Kobe's upbringing in Italy, his move with his family to Lower Marion Township, Pennsylvania, when he was 13, and throughout his entire high school years. Um, I can't recommend it highly enough. There are quotes from Kobe in this book that we've never seen or heard until now, because they were recorded back in 1996-97, Kobe's rookie year, and never saw the light of day until now. The why and the how of that is fascinating. The book explains it, and Mike Stielski will explain it during our chat. Uh, if you've been listening to me for a while, you know I open every podcast and have been opening all of my podcasts since before this one with some version of What Up? And that's because of Kobe. If you heard me over the years on Zach Lowe's podcast, you know he greets me every time with, what up, Beck? Because as Zach recalled back when I first started going on his show, he recalls a moment during the 2011 NBA lockout, a player meeting in Midtown Manhattan at a hotel. Dozens of players are filtering through the lobby of the Sheraton Hotel, and Kobe strolls through at one point, sunglasses on, looking cool as can be. And as he passes by the gathered media contingent waiting for them, he sees me and says simply, what up, Beck? Uh, I didn't recall that moment, but Zach loved it, kind of mentally filed it away, introduced me one day with it on his pod, and it's sort of stuck ever since. And so when I started my own podcast in 2017, 
I decided to incorporate it myself, a little subtle homage to Kobe. I covered Kobe up close for seven years from 1997 to 2004, got to know him as well as a reporter can, given the professional limitations and the nature of the job. And I still learned so, so much from Mike Sielski's new book about those formative years of Kobe's life, his teenage years. Really enjoyed the book, really enjoyed the chat with Mike. I think you will as well. Okay, my conversation with Mike Sielski is coming up next, so stick around. This is The Crossover, an NBA show hosted by Sports Illustrated's Chris Mannix and Howard Beck. It's a whole new level for you and me, Chris, this relationship. Like and subscribe for the best weekly NBA content these two are capable of. What does that mean? Could be the best duo ever. I don't see how you can beat that. Here they are, Chris Mannix and Howard Beck. Now very pleased to be joined by the author of The Rise, Kobe Bryant and the Pursuit of Immortality, is Mike Sielski. Mike, how are you, sir? Thanks for joining us. Howard, thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this. Uh, me as well, very much so. Um, I, congratulations on the book. Uh, I read it cover to cover, um, including every end note. No, I did not read all the end <laughs> notes. I, I, I otherwise read it cover to cover. Uh, it, it's beautifully written. Incredible details. And as you know, I, I covered Kobe for seven years up close in LA. There was a lot here I didn't know, but that's because you focused on a, a portion of Kobe's life that I feel like, while not unexamined, certainly not explored in the level of precision and detail that you did in, in this book. Um, and so it was it was really a, just a phenomenal read. So congratulations on that and, and all the success to come behind it. We are... Of course, as you and I speak, nearing the two-year mark since Kobe's death, um, a lot was said and written at the time, but that was, in fact, mostly about the Kobe we knew or thought we knew through the course of his NBA career, his public life. Your book is like 99.9% .9 before that. Uh, what is it that you want people to learn or understand about Kobe Bryant pre-NBA, pre-fame, really? So a couple things. Um, first of all, thanks for having me. Second of all, um, I do remember the immediate aftermath of Kobe's death. And I remember reading your piece for Bleacher Report about Kobe. And I would say this even if I weren't talking to you right now. I thought your, your piece was the best of all the obituary tributes commemorate. You know, it was really well done, really Thank beautiful. You. So, um, you. you know, kudos to you for that. And um, to answer your question, my goal in writing the book was... I wanted someone who was familiar with Kobe from his 20 plus years with the Lakers and his the, the almost, I guess, three and a half years of his retirement to be able to say, OK, if I want to know something about him, I can pick up this book now, five years from now, 10 years from now, read about his early life, you know, his quote unquote origin story and be able to understand the man and the figure that he became um, in its totality. I didn't want this to be. He's the greatest person in the history of people. I didn't want this to be, he was a terrible human being. Um, we're all shades of gray. And I wanted to try to reflect all those shades in, in telling a story that, as you pointed out, I feel like people kind of know it, but never really saw the drama within it. You know, I mean, you know this as well as anybody. Kobe enters the NBA at age 17. And I think that went a long way to making him so popular and such a uh, 
a known figure in the public. The, the world felt like they grew up with him watching him play basketball with the Lakers. And from living and working in the Philadelphia area, I knew there was this other side to his story that not as many people knew about, but that had its own sense of drama, um, its own interesting facts and tidbits and uh, narratives and things like that. So that to me was the interesting um, sort of way that I could go into Kobe's story. I, I, I couldn't tell his Lakers the story of his Lakers career the well as well as someone like you could, but I could tell this part of his story as well as anybody. Well, and to to the point of his Lakers career, his you know everything from Kobe from age seventeen on, it had been done so many times. Uh, obviously, a couple books by Roland Lazenby that were excellent. Jeff Perlman's recent book that was um, you know Kobe from like ninety I think seven through oh four or ninety six through oh four. So just the first half of his career, the, the Kobe Shack years. Um, and several others that that weaved in and out of it. And so that part of it had been done so exhaustively. And every single one of those biographies or Laker books at some point does, Kobe grew up in Italy. You know, Kobe, mm-hmm. you know, then his family moved to, you know, to Lower Marion and he goes to high school. Like there's always these touchstone points about his family life, about the influence of his father and his mother and his sisters, about Italy, about, you know, Philadelphia, all of this. But they are they are passing moments and you have now gone in depth on all that. Were you concerned at all that like there's been so much written about him already that I mean you know it and you've got a very you've you've got this um local sensibility where you know the, these people and you've been friends with Jeremy Treatman who was uh one of the assistant coaches at Lower Marion High who you uh rely on at length in this book. So you have these relationships and this understanding of time and place there that maybe well the vast majority of us do not have. Was that where your kind of the confidence came from that, like, I can tell the, a different story here of a guy who has been written about exhaustively for decades? You, you absolutely put your finger on it, Howard. Um, I mean, I obviously read uh, Roland's two books on Kobe. I read Jeff's book on the Lakers of the 90s and early 2000s. And I was kind of concerned on it from both ends. Right. Like I didn't I, I knew so much had been written about Kobe from the Lakers standpoint. And I also knew that. The people in the Philadelphia area really were, were very familiar with the story that I tell in this book. So there was an intellectual hurdle that I had to get over in my own head about, am I telling a story that's already been done to death? And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, okay, Philadelphia is really parochial. Um, it's kind of got an under the dome kind of sensibility, if you're familiar at all with the area. So while people here might know the Lower Marion story or know a little bit more about the Italy side of Kobe's story. Um, the rest of the country and maybe the rest of the world don't. And I really wanted to, to put Kobe in his, in the proper sense of time and place, like the era of him being a teenager, the place of Lower Marion. What is it about this community? What was it about this high school in some ways that allowed him to become who he was? It, it, you know, it wasn't totally because of that. It wasn't totally that, oh, he grew up in Lower Marion, therefore he, be, he adopted the Mamba mentality. But that aspect of his story really appealed to me um, because, as you said, nobody had really gone that deep on it. You, you read stuff and it's like, yeah, well, he played at Lower Marion High School. Okay, well, what does that mean? There are, there are certain connotations to that if you're familiar with the, the, the place of Lower Marion Township or the main line on Philadelphia, there are certain kind of stereotypes and connotations that come up. But what what was the actual history there? What aspects of his of Kobe's story 
in that setting had not been told? And um, how can I put him in his time and place in that spot to show how he became who he became? So let's talk about that. Um, the family moves to Lower Marion when he is 12? Yes. He, so, in the December of 1991. Yeah. He, he, he had just yeah. turned 13. Just turned 13. Who is Kobe Bryant? You know, uh, it, you know, uh, son of Joe Bryant, former NBA player who has now grown up mostly in Italy and has moved with his family at age 13 to the outskirts of Philadelphia. Who is Kobe in that moment? And what about that do you think does now inform us about the Kobe that we would all come to know? Well, in a, in a lot of respects, he's an outsider. Okay, so he steps into the Lower Marion community. He's not in high school just yet. He's, uh, he shows up at Ballackinwood Middle School in eighth grade and kind of the middle of the school year. He doesn't know what's cool. He doesn't know what kind of clothes to wear. You know, what, what, what clothes are cool? What music is cool? What TV shows are cool? He doesn't know that everybody's watching the Cosby show or Cheers or, or the Simpsons or listening to this kind of music or that kind of music. Uh, and even into his freshman year of high school, um, that year, he and his two older sisters, Shea and Sharia, are in Lower Marion High School together. They're wearing um, European-style clothing. They're wearing dashikis. They're passing each other in the hallway and speaking to Italian in each other, in part because that's what uh, they're accustomed to doing in school because they've been going to school in Italy for the previous eight years, and in part because they're so close that it's, it's their own language in this setting. You know, Kobe hasn't grown up the way uh, virtually any of the black kids in the Lower Marion School District have. He hasn't grown up in the way that uh, the Jewish kids or the WASP kids at Lower Marion have. So he's a bit of an outsider. Um, he's got a kind of an interesting viewpoint on the world because the Bryants had been living in Italy uh, for the better part of eight years. He's accustomed a little bit to being in an environment where he doesn't see a whole lot of black faces. Okay, he's in an, um, you know, they're in Italy. There aren't that many people who look like them over there. But and he spoke, you know, very well about this. The Italian people embraced his family. So I think that allows him to be open once he comes back to the United States to people of all different kinds of groups. Um, basketball is his way in. Initially, he becomes the kid who's, oh, my gosh, this is the son of the former NBA player. And he's really good at basketball himself. But he's also the kid who's sitting next to you in the 10th grade honors English class. He's the kid who really likes rap music, um, you know, and so those sorts of tendrils or threads allow him by the time he graduates from, from Lower Marion to connect with a lot of different kids in a lot of different ways. And by the time he graduates, there's no question he's the most popular in some ways, quote unquote, important figure at the school. I feel like um, in reading um, all of that and his evolution or his, his just his growth and kind of, be, you know, getting accustomed to being now an American kid playing basketball at a suburban Philadelphia Heights, like you can see some of the evolution in your book of Kobe as he starts to kind of, I guess, kind of get his bearings and find himself a little bit. But even at the end, at the end of your book, which is Kobe still at age 17, and a full year before I would meet him, because I, I didn't start covering the Lakers until his second season. I think like some of the awkwardness and and this mix of both bravado and insecurity in Kobe, which is the Kobe that I met so long ago, um, like that, like I really felt that in your book, Mike. Like you can really get a sense of, and obviously this is 
there's even more of the insecurity part of it in, in those early years because of everything you just described. I think people would find that surprising because we're used to not just with Kobe, but with superstar, you know, athletes in general, celebrities, there is this, you know, soaring confidence and uh, an ego and a swagger. And Kobe is all those things. But I think the vulnerability of Kobe really comes through in your book. And I feel like it's the part that people maybe have missed the most for understandable reasons. But I I also will insist uh, till, till, till the end of, of, of my time on this earth that that vulnerability never actually went away. Like I felt it was always there. Um, give me some of the examples of, of where that that kind of um, duality with Kobe uh, came through during his high school years. Sure. Well, I think I think to your point, he was supremely confident when he came to basketball and he had a clear understanding of what he thought he needed to do to reach the apex of that world. Right. Like he intrinsically understands when he you know, while he's uh, while his family's living in Italy, he come they come home every summer. And he would play in the Sunny Hill League, the prestigious summer league of Philadelphia basketball. He knows he has to do that. He knows that as long as I'm either Italy Kobe or Lower Marion Kobe, I'm never going to be the player I want to be or need to be unless I test myself on the greatest stage. And he understands that implicitly at an early age. I think the vulnerability you're talking about um, gets to life away from basketball, right? Like he... He has kind of a quasi-girlfriend throughout his three or four years, first three or four years of high school. They don't really go out on dates so much as they sit home. She comes home and sits with him on the couch and watches videos of Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson. (laughs) Um, You know, he sort of kind of dates another uh, high-profile basketball player in the Philadelphia area, Kristen Clement, but he's very quick to kind of say that they're not dating, that they're just friends. And maybe they are just friends. Maybe they're not really dating. It's kind of, there's always kind of this mystery at the heart of Kobe. Um, There's a video out there that I tracked down of him delivering an oral presentation in English class. And you can see their nervousness in that. He's kind of self-assured, but he's also kind of licking his lips and looking around the room and just kind of, it's, it's just a little bit of a setting that's not basketball where he's not in total control. Um, and you, you see that reflected in the way he delivers that speech. Uh, he would connect with female students apart from basketball. He, uh, there was uh, one female friend of his who he loved the way she sang. He loved her singing voice and wanted her to sing the national anthem before every game and would talk to her about what music meant to her in her life. So I think you're right. I think when it came to basketball, supreme confidence, the mama mentality at an age where most of us are struggling with, you know, who, do, who am I? What do I want to be? All of those things. Um, but away from the game, there was much more of this, okay, I'm going to join the student voice at Lower Marion, the Black Student Union Organization, because I'm searching to figure out how does my, wh- what is my identity as a, as a Black kid in this community at this time in our culture and our history? Um, he was on less secure footing when it came to those things. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. 
Unbelievable! When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. There are a couple striking things, and I don't want to give away too many of like the, you know, great, I mean, there's there's tons and tons of great stuff for people to discover in the book. So I, I there, you know, even if I spoil a couple of these, I think people will find plenty more um, to discover. But this this quote from his English teacher, I hope I pronounced her name correctly, Jean Mastriano. Yep, you got it. This quote just it just struck me so much um, because it this to me this was a this is an aspect of Kobe that I think I kind of saw and understood on some level, but again, not one that that people are familiar with. She says at one point, "quote He told me he was very lonely much of the time and that he dribbled himself to sleep," and I thought wow, there is Kobe in a nutshell. Like even during his pro career, especially during the early parts of his pro career when I first met him and he was separated from his older teammates and he was again, a kind of a loner and outsider just as he was when he first got to Lower Marion. He is when he first gets to the NBA, trying to find himself, trying to carve out his niche, trying to connect with people. But basketball is his is his salvation and, and, and is the one place that he's most comfortable. So his, his English teacher, who he's, who he's obviously very close to, um, and has spoken highly of over the years, that quote from her just just leveled me. Um, it, I, 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 it, because it's you feel for Kobe in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a, the, the basketball was the only place where it seemed like he felt fully himself. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it was Sonny Vaccaro who I quoted in the book as saying Kobe was one step ahead of everybody else, and that's great when it comes to your career. But it's much more challenging when it comes to social relationships and, um, how, as you said, Howard, how you connect with people. When you, th- when you see yourself as being on a different plane from everybody else around you, it's going to make those connections more difficult. And you see that time and time again in his relationships with his peers at that age and his relationships with his adults. For instance, I'll give you a quick example. One of my kind of favorite anecdotes in the book is he had a friend named Matt Matkoff who he met in eighth grade. And it was kind of the biggest cheerleader for Kobe among Kobe's group of friends. Um, Matkoff was not nearly the basketball player that Kobe was. Obviously, nobody would be at that level, but, you know, wasn't even quite good enough um, to, to play in Lower Marion's varsity team. And by the time senior year rolls around, um, Greg Downer, the head coach at Lower Marion and his coaching staff are debating, hey, are we going to have to cut Matkoff from the team? And if we do should we be worried about that? Because he's Kobe's best friend. And one of the assistant coaches, Mike Egan says, just cut him. Don't worry about it. Kobe won't notice for two weeks. And sure enough, Matt Koff decides not to play. He stops coming to practice and two weeks go by and Kobe says one day at practice, Hey, where's Matt Koff? You know, and it's that kind of combination of like tunnel vision on what I want to be and what I'm doing to get there. And that kind of tentativeness and sometimes obliviousness to the social interactions and social cues 
that come naturally to a lot of people that I think gets to what you're saying about Kobe, that kind of split. Yeah, no question. Um, the tunnel vision, I think uh, that that phrase describes it perfectly. So a lot of Kobe's most famous slash infamous traits I think all come through here, even from an early age, even when we're reading about Kobe at, at, at age 12, 13, 14, the work ethic, the intensity, the stubbornness, the determination to be great, um, his focus, his selfishness at times, um, all of this. And I think at one point you 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 write, I jotted this note to myself, I think this was, I'm, I think I'm quoting you uh, saying this, that he carried himself on the court with his father's style and his mother's intensity. And I remember early on, we would ask Kobe about his influences and how he became this this player and this hyper-focused on basketball. And we would all assume it's Joe Bryant because Joe's the one who played professional basketball and was with the 76ers and, and everything. And Kobe was the one who would correct us and tell us, no, you don't, you're, you, what you don't understand is how much of this comes from my mom comes from Pam. Um, I don't know if there's an answer to these kinds of questions and how much is just kind of genetic as opposed to, you know, the, the you know, the nature nurture argument, but like where, where does this hyper-focus, this intensity, this, um, this, not just the belief that he was going to be great, absolute belief, but the ability to then channel all of that belief and desire in a way that people at that age don't do, <laughs> just don't on for toward anything. It's a very, very rare thing to have that kind of hyper focus to the extent where you forget that your friend has got cut two weeks ago or didn't right. notice it. Right. Cause that's how it's not that he's a bad friend necessarily, although maybe, but it's more about, he is just so focused on the thing is that, do we have any sense of where that comes from? Is it just somehow intrinsic? It's just baked into his genes. I, I you use the phrase nature versus nurture. I think, and I've gotten asked that question a lot. I think it is 50, 50. I think it is 50% nature and 50% nurture. So he's born with it, right? At age three, Joe's playing for uh, Kobe is age three. Joe's playing for the San Diego Clippers. Kobe's dunking in their house, in their home, you know, on the, on a, little basket. Uh, and he's emulating his dad. That, that basketball thing was just in him and that drive was just in him. But in terms of the, the nurture aspect of it, I think he had kind of had the perfect melding in Joe and Pam. Pam had that within her. That was her personality. You read some of the anecdotes about her in Italy and the way she interacts with, you know, people who might, she's going out for a jog and somebody cat calls her and she does not respond well, you know, or not, I shouldn't say not respond well, but she responds very strongly uh, to that. That's her personality. She was devoted to her family. Um, she was devoted to Kobe and she was very protective of that. And some of that comes to her from nurturing. She's raised a devout Catholic, things like that. So I think the mentality itself comes from her. I think Joe gives Kobe the ability in basketball, obviously, but I think to Kobe, Joe was something of a cautionary tale. Joe's career in the NBA did not turn out the way that he would have wanted it to. He was an incredible high school player in Philadelphia. He was a great college player. He left LaSalle, which is my alma mater, early. If he had stayed an extra year, he probably would have been the number one pick in the subsequent draft. Instead, he comes out early. He is six foot nine at a time where, and is very mobile and skilled with the ball at a time when a coach saw a guy who was six foot nine and stuck him under the basket. You know, Magic Johnson hadn't come around yet. So um, teams didn't know what to do with him. Coaches didn't know what to do with him. And Joe kind of had this 
flaky personality. He was kind of a ne'er-do-well, the kind of guy who'd miss the team bus to practice and things like that. So, and and then once his career ends, he's bitter about what happened. You know, I didn't get the shot I should have gotten. Um, And Kobe hears this over time. And Kobe looks at his dad and says, I'm not going to be him. I'm not going to let what happened to my dad happen to me. I'm going to redeem the Bryant name when it comes to basketball. So you've got these two forces, right? You've got motivation from and talent coming from the dad side of things. And of course, the experience that comes with having been an NBA player. And you've got the mentality from Pam Bryant, from the mom. Um, and you put those together. And I think that's where you get this melding in Kobe of the two. He had it within him, but then he has the environment and the upbringing that, that it kind of harnesses that desire in the way to make him the greatest player on the planet for a while. I mean, certainly in, in his work ethic, his dedication, his um, his self-discipline when it came to basketball, I, it seems to me that those are things that he – or like it's the course correction from Joe Bryant. It, it, that there is a little bit of a – as you mentioned, dad was kind of flaky. Joe Bryant in his career, you know, probably – you know, maybe he was the wrong player at the wrong time, and he would have been phenomenal in today's NBA as a six nine guy who could who could do it all out on the uh, the perimeter. But it seems to me that that yeah, somewhere in there, Kobe finds a kind of 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 uh, this. He's got this North Star, and it drives him and focuses him in a way that maybe his his father didn't have. Um, it does go to the extreme. There's another passage again. Like some of these just strike me as you know, if you want to look at them as uh, you know, here's a here's a kid who just knew exactly what he wanted and how to get it. It's it's admirable, but it makes me sad to read some of these passages. Um, who was Kobe Bryant? This is I'm I'm quoting your your writing here. Who was Kobe Bryant during the spring and summer of 1994? He was a kid who had no free time because he wanted no free time. A kid who played in at least six basketball leagues and at least two basketball camps and traveled the East Coast for AAU tournaments. And it goes on to a few other details because there's more and more. And then it finally ends with he was a kid obsessed. Um, I know that again, that to me just kind of, it, 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 it sums it all up it along the way there. He's, he's finding his, his, you know, moments of, of glory and everything. Um, I don't know if there was any one moment as I read it, but I want to ask you, is there a holy shit moment <laughs> where somewhere, whether it was junior high or AAU or whatever, where it's not just that, okay, he's son of a former NBA player who has some talent and people are starting to discover him. And yeah, like not just that he's going to be good, that he's a basketball player who's going to have a career, but that he is something special, that he is something that some somebody, the kind of player that we just, you know, see once in a blue moon. Was there a holy shit moment somewhere along the way? I, I think it's it's not a moment. It's a summer. I think it's the summer of 95. Um, where John Lucas, who was the Sixers coach at the time and whose daughter was a classmate of Kobe's at Lower Marion, invites him to scrimmage and play pickup and work out with the Sixers and other NBA players and Division I players at St. Joseph's University and at Episcopal Academy in Philly. Um, I think that's the turning point for a number of reasons. Number one, I think that's uh, that persuades and convinces Kobe, you know what, I really don't have to go to college. I can go straight to the NBA because I am holding my own and then some against Jerry Stackhouse and Rick Mahorn and Vernon Maxwell and Sharon Wright and all of these guys who are already in the league and are pretty, most of them are pretty darn good players. And I think that's the moment where everything changes, right? He goes, and, and what's interesting about it is that at least in the Philadelphia area, not a lot of people perceive it. 
if you read the coverage of Kobe at that time, and you even read it during his senior year, there's this vibe of who does this kid think he is that he might go to the NBA? Um, he's a six foot six guard who's kind of thin and wispy. Why would he think that he can make the jump? You know, Kevin Garnett had just done it the year before, of course, but Kevin Garnett is seven feet tall. Kevin Garnett is a man at 18 years old. Of course, Kevin Garnett can think he can make the jump. And Kobe's not coming from the same socioeconomic background that Kevin Garnett does. Kobe doesn't have to make the jump. He could go to Duke. He could go to North Carolina. He could go to LaSalle. But that summer, I think more than any other, really, that's the switch that flips. It's And it's Kobe realizes finally, you know what? I can do what I've always wanted to do. I'm going toe-to-toe with these guys and therefore I can make the jump. And you get anecdotes throughout that summer of NBA people watching him play Maurice cheeks, um, you know, uh, uh, John Nash hearing things through the grapevine, uh, John Lucas watching him to the point that, you know, Lucas decides if he's available in the 96 draft, I'm going to take him. And of course, Lucas gets fired before the 96 draft rolls around. But that summer is kind of the holy shit moment. I think it's just, it, it was holy shit morning after morning, night after night at St. Joe's and at Episcopal. Yeah. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard to snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. You mentioned Stackhouse, and I think Stack has done his own uh, part in this to try to dispel some uh, myth-making or or mythologizing that had happened over the years. But there was this this idea that Kobe went in and destroyed Jerry Stackhouse one day, and like that was the holy shit moment. But also like this this like humiliating moment for Stack allegedly. Um, You do go into some detail about what truly happened that day. So uh, what truly happened? that day (laughs) what truly happened is that they sometimes kobe got the better of them and sometimes stack got the better of them and i think this is one of those things howard where you know you know this as well as anybody we're in we're in myth into the the game of myth making at times when it comes to great athletes and if you if you put again putting kobe in his time and place at that time he's a 16 17 year old kid playing against among other guys jerry stackhouse who was the number three pick in the 1995 draft and who was presumed to be the Sixers savior before they take Allen Iverson the following year. So the deck is stacked against stack in that, in that dynamic, right? If he destroys Kobe, well, of course he's supposed to destroy Kobe and the people who are there watching this, they bring that expectation to what they're seeing. If, if, if Kobe holds his own, or is able to score on Stackhouse here and there, it's like, 
could you see what this kid was doing? He's better than Stackhouse. Well, maybe they were playing evenly, but the fact that one has got a year of NBA uh, experience under his belt and took North Carolina to the final four. And one is playing at a suburban Philadelphia high school that doesn't have a particularly good basketball history. You know, that's not an even playing field when it comes to evaluating them. So if they're even close to even, you're going to elevate and vault Kobe over him. Um, it was interesting. I, tr- I reached out to, to stack through Vanderbilt and he declined to talk to me for the book. And I, I understand why, because he's been living with this for so long, this idea that like, Kobe schooled you in 95, man. It's like, here's the whole story. Here's what really happened. It sounds great, but et cetera, et cetera. And you got other people who were in the gym. Yes, exactly. exactly. So even Stack did not have to necessarily defend himself uh, for, for the book's sake, uh, although I'm sure that his Stack being as, as uh, uh, descriptive and colorful as he is yes. <laughs> at a great interview would have added plenty. Um, oh, yeah. But you had yeah. people in the gym. Like you have, you know, the, the, um, I think probably the the most thorough accounting of it that has been done since this myth was launched all the <laughs> all those yeah, many years ago. And, and I get it, right? Like I understand it. We want, you know, it's it's the it's the combination of that and the Jerry West Lakers workouts, you know, yes. and the quotes that that West has given of I've never seen a workout like that before in my life. Um, and he totally schooled Michael Cooper and and Larry Drew and all of these things. Th- these things, these anecdotes take on greater resonance and power over time uh, as somebody like Kobe Bryant gets better and better and more famous and famous. How was Kobe viewed um, within his own peer group at Lower Marion, both his teammates and his classmates in general, as his fame just starts to grow, as as the talent starts to blossom, as he becomes you know, instead of just this curiosity, the kid who came over from Italy, but but becomes kind of a, you know, a local celebrity. How is he regarded in his own peers? He's still regarded as one of the peers as much as somebody in his position could have been. Um, there's a quote in there from one of his classmates saying, you know, shout out to 90s references like this. Like, it's not like he was Macaulay Culkin, right? <laughs> um, you know, and, yeah. you know, he still went to class every day. He, you know, again, that comes back to Pam and the accent on academics. It wasn't as if he was shirking any of the other duties or responsibilities or day-to-day activities of being a kid. It just so happened that when he was outside of the school building for the, you know, from 7 a.m. until 3 p.m. every day, he was doing whatever he needed to do to be this great NBA player. Um, and what's interesting to me is that all these years later, those classmates and teammates still look at him that way, right? They don't see... And this is both with respect to the great things that Kobe did and with the troubles that he encountered and the troubles that he brought on to himself later in his life, they still see him as the kid sitting next to them in English class. They still see him as the teammate who, when the, when the, the Lower Marion boys basketball bus would go over a bridge, Kobe would grab the seat and white knuckle it because he was afraid of going over a body of water because he was afraid of heights. That's who they view him as to a great degree still. And I wanted as much as I could to kind of capture that in the book, yeah. you know, time and place, setting, all of those, you know, sorts of things. Because to them, it's a moment in time. They still look at him that way. Which is, you know, uh, wonderful. And it's uh, and anecdotes like that I just thought were so endearing. And when I spoke earlier about Kobe's vulnerability, like that, that was one of the things I had in mind, too, with those stories about him being scared of going over bridges like this. Kobe freaking bright, like he's larger than life. And here he is as a teenager, like white knuckling the the seat in front of him because he's 
He's right. I mean, think about like the his first year with the Lakers, right? Like he's, as you said, he's 17, 18 years old. He is not among peers. He is becoming a man at a time that the other 11 guys on the roster are men. So what is he doing? He's calling up Arn Tellum's assistant and asking her to come over to watch Mr. Bean on HBO. And she's having a dinner party and he's just sitting there watching TV, not interacting with her guests. She's just, he's just kind of there. And that gets to what you're saying about being a part and still growing and developing and being an outsider, you know, even at that young age. Yeah. Um, on the basketball side of it, I thought the parallels were even stronger because the entire story of Kobe Bryant's NBA career was one of constantly figuring out and then forgetting and then and then having to reteach himself how to be a good teammate, right? Struggling with when to be the superstar who does it all and when to be uh, a, you know, a, a good teammate, a selfless teammate, the tag of being selfish, that stuff, it, it seems like started very early, the, the being tagged as selfish or being too willful, trying to do too much, um, intimidating his teammates. There are some stories in your book of, of him kind of intimidating his, his own teammates and then at times being a little fearful of him um, and you know, and, and, and of his, of his wrath at times, but mm -hmm. in other mo moments, he's, he is incredibly supportive and almost sounds like, you know, a guy who's 10 years older, kind of counseling some of his teammates yeah. and one, and, and uh, one of the girls who was a basketball player, I remember one of the anecdotes in your book of him counseling her and him sounding in that moment, like he's, you know, uh, you know, a, a wise old vet. Right. Um, so tell, so tell me a little bit about that, because I think that those, those stories, that kind of dynamic very much foretold, I think, what had happened in his NBA career because that was the tension from all the Shaq years, even through the the, the, the final two championships next to Pau Gasol and Lamar Odom. Um, it, it it seems like this was just something he always would struggle with or did struggle with even at an early age. No, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, think about it. In Italy, he's his own basketball entity in some ways, right? Like he is learning the game by watching his dad and watching the Italian pros that he sees. And when he plays that he's working by himself. And when he plays amongst other kids, he's shooting the ball all the time. He comes to lower Marion. And as a freshman, the, he's a freshman and the team goes four and 20, which if you think about it ought to be impossible. But part of the reason that the team goes four and 20 is because the other players resent him because he shoots the ball too much. And there's dissension on the team. And if that's not a parallel to what happened with the Lakers, I don't know what is. Um, and then it, it, you know, because he's so much better than everybody else, the team does well uh, his sophomore year and his junior year. But then early in his senior year, I think this anecdote gets to what you're anecdote gets to what you're talking about. They lose an early season game in Myrtle Beach at this beach ball classic tournament. And their head coach, Greg Downer, calls a team meeting and kind of calls out everybody one by one. And Kobe's going, yeah, you know, as, as Downer goes through the team, you know, you got to play better and you're playing scared and blah, blah, blah. And you're goofing off. And Kobe's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then finally Downer says, and you, Kobe, you've got to trust these guys. You've got to understand that they've got to be at their best for us to be the team that we can be and should be. And that's really the first time in his basketball life that anybody calls him out from that perspective, right? It's not enough that you score 31 points. And you can't look at it like, well, I did what I could, I should have done, and we didn't win, so it's not my fault. There's got to be something else there. And I think that 
gets to the heart of what you're talking about. Downer is really the first coach to do that and, and connect with him in that way, um, purely from a basketball standpoint. And from that point on, the Aces don't lose another game the rest of the season. And Kobe becomes that teammate, both demanding and sometimes intimidating, but also support, much more supportive of his guys um, than he had been before. Um, there's this, again, you know, and, and you note this in the book, that, that there are certain things that are just like these throwaway lines that the rest of us who, who covered him only in the NBA would just include, you know, and he took his high school team to the championship. Okay. You know, it's kind of what you expect of a player mm-hmm. of his caliber, right? That that would happen. I... Mike, I had no idea. I had no idea the layers of drama and some of the, the, the details in their road to the championship game, which I, I will not spoil here. I want people to read your book. Um, there's there are things there where I'm like, this is a made for TV movie or this is <laughs> or this is a script. This like some of the stuff that happens, um, it's just some unforeseen drama. Uh, and it's that that story is in itself. I feel like um, in a weird way, all of these decades later is is is, is this kind of fun revelation, at least for me, who I, th- I thought I knew, you know, not necessarily everything there was to know, but quite a bit. Well, I appreciate you picking up on that, Howard, because that was one of the um, two main narrative threads. And it was the one that uh, my editor on the project really accented. He said, the road to the state championship is going to be the backbone of this book and this narrative. So I kind of kept that one in mind. And then I kept the evolution of Kobe in mind as the other one. And um, that, that I could get into along the road to the state championship in some ways, but, um, those were kind of the brackets that I'd set up for myself. It was, okay, I've got to get lower Marion to the end of Kobe's senior year as a basketball team. And then I've got to get Kobe from this sounds, uh, let me phrase this the right way. The book begins and ends with aircraft. The book begins with the helicopter crash and it ends with a plane landing. And I came up with that very early on in the process. So I had those two kind of lines of demarcation. I've got Lower Marion and I've got the helicopter crash and the plane landing. And those were kind of my guiding narrative posts, so to speak, throughout the, the writing of the book. Um, the, and the, the symmetry is, is, is wonderful and chilling at the same time. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bed 365 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. So let me actually back up because I want to ask you this. When did you know that you were going to do this book? Did the did this process actually begin after Kobe's death two years ago? Um, and I think I want to I want to give you the opportunity to explain this too because the fascinating part, one of the fascinating aspects of, of your book, Mike, and what it, what informs so much of that is that 
uh, Jeremy Treatman, uh, an assistant coach at Lower Marion, who had known Kobe since, yeah, what, since junior high or whatever, um, had all these tapes, these Kobe tapes um, that you were able to, he had transcripts and then he eventually finds the tapes. And so, so much of your book, you have all these wonderful quotes from Kobe. Some of them are are, are contemporaneous. They're, they're, they're things he said at the time as these things were happening that maybe we've never seen or heard before. And others, I think, are, are, are him reflecting back at different points. It's a little hard to know, and it's really not necessarily that important, except that I'm a reporter, and so I'm immediately starting <laughs> to wonder, well, I wonder when Kobe said this, and where did this yeah. one come from? Um, and so, but, but that aspect of it is fascinating because we are hearing, we are hearing Kobe um, it, it's a, I hate the, the phrase for beyond the grave is, 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 is too spooky and weird, but that's kind of what I felt was like, I'm, I'm hearing these quotes from Kobe that we've never heard before because they were on these tapes that were sitting like, uh, in treatment's garage, I guess. Yeah. All right. So, all right. So I'll back up way up. So I met Jeremy treatment in 1996, uh, when I was an undergrad at LaSalle and Jeremy was the radio play by play guy for the LaSalle men's basketball team. And he was already, um, he already knew Kobe at that time. He and Kobe were tight. Uh, Jeremy was kind of like the media relations rep, so to speak, for the Lower Marion basketball team, Kobe's senior year. And they got the idea at the time, Jeremy got the idea, to write kind of Kobe's memoir. It was going to be called My Freshman Year in the NBA. And the two of them sat down for these series of interviews in 1996 and 1997. And Kobe talking into these, this micro cassette recorder that Jeremy had. The book never came to be. Um, I think it was just simply a matter of bad timing um, for that kind of thing. And the project gets scuttled. So when Kobe died in January 2020, I ended up writing half a dozen to a dozen columns about him for the Inquirer. I had known Jeremy. I knew Greg Downer pretty well. Um, and I got this idea like, you know, I wonder if there's a book here about Kobe's origin story. Right. Like not to not to frame Kobe as a superhero, but I kind of wanted to do Batman Begins for the Black Mamba. I thought that would have salience. I reached out to Jeremy and I reached out to Greg Downer and they agreed to cooperate with me. Jeremy had transcribed some of his interviews with Kobe and had kind of turned them into these as told to chapters in his book that never got published. So he hands me those transcripts, but they're not everything that he had talked to Kobe about. And he says, I can't find the tapes. I'm sorry. Like, okay. So I go forward. I'm working on the book, writing it, writing it. It's December of 2020. Jeremy is going to move to Boca Raton, Florida from his townhouse in Florida, excuse me, townhouse in Philadelphia. And he's cleaning out his garage on the night of December 22nd. And I get a phone call at 830. Mike, it's Jeremy. I found the tapes. I got, I almost dropped the phone. I got chills. And I'm getting chills just hearing you retelling this. <laughs> and the next morning I drive over to his house. I throw a mask on. He's got a mask on and he hands me this giant Ziploc bag full of micro cassette tapes in his garage. So I spend the next month or two listening to them and you're right. You know, I don't know of another phrase for it and it's not an appropriate phrase, but it was like hearing Kobe from beyond the grave. You're hearing him at 17, 18, 19 years old, talking about the state championship run, talking about his relationship with his parents, um, his first encounter with Michael Jordan, his first impression of Shaquille O'Neal, his first impression of Del Harris, which was quite colorful and not particularly friendly. Um, and, yeah. and, but, and, and some of the things you could hear, the differences in his inflection, the inflection in his voice, he sounded different a year into his NBA career than he did 
the summer before he started playing with the Lakers. Um, and it just, it, it, it was better than any kind of, even, even if Kobe had been alive for me to have interviewed him, I, I think these tapes would have been better because it was what he was thinking and saying at that moment, he wouldn't have had to remember it. And that once I had that, I was like, okay, now I've, I've really got something to lend texture and detail to this narrative. And those tapes are also the basis of the accompanying podcast, correct? The I Am Kobe yes. podcast series? Yeah, that's right. We were able to, to take them and use them and did this, uh, it's 12 episodes, kind of a 10-part narrative series, and then uh, an additional two bonus episodes. And you hear Kobe on these tapes in every single one. Yeah. After he died... Um I actually, for other reasons, I had been scrambling through or just, you know, digging. I, I'm a terrible pack rat and I have all my old micro cassettes. Um, I, we all use digital recorders now, but I had micro cassette tapes for all of the years that I was covering the Lakers. You don't realize it in the moment that these things have potentially the value that they do. You tape over and over and over the mm -hmm. same 30 minutes of tape on each side or whatever, because every day there's another... Right. practice in another game and another shoot around and another whatever. So I didn't keep anything intentionally, but I just have all these tapes that just piled up in a box over the course of various moves and everything. And so I have snippets of Kobe. And of course, these tapes have degraded terribly. And because also because I had used the same tape over and over and over again. Sure. And yeah, it's only at times like that. It's only later that you wish like, man, I, I wish I had kept all these things. Like I wish I had just cataloged them. And I would, or especially certain, certain interviews when I, you know, the, the occasions when I had a sit down with Kobe, you know, one-on-one. -on -one and, um, and so you, you, you just, you feel uh, just the, the, the regret of not having that. Now you, you, and you and Jeremy treatment have this gold mine and I, I have not been able to, uh, to listen to the podcast series yet, but that is next on my, on my list Thanks. for sure. Yeah, and to be honest, Howard, like I'm, in doing the project, I became very jealous of people like you or anybody who had covered the Lakers, you know, during Kobe's time on a day-to-day -day basis like that, because there was so much to him, good, bad, complex, again, gray, that the ride that you were on during the years that you were covering him for the Lakers I can't even imagine it. Like it, it just, it would have been so thrilling and exhausting and rewarding in so many ways that um, I kept thinking that as I was going over, you know, God, I wish I had it. I wish he'd played for the Sixers. I wish they had drafted him in 96. <laughs> as fun as it was to cover Allen Iverson when he was here, Kobe would have been all that and more, I think. How well did you know him? I mean, I know there's at least one encounter uh, with him that you mentioned in the book, maybe a couple. Um, what were what was the relationship that you had? Obviously, you were close to people that he was very close to and Greg Downer and Jeremy Treatment. Um, what were your own experiences with Kobe during his life? Not not particularly close. Um, you know, covered the 2001 NBA Finals when he and the Lakers cut the hearts out of Sixers fans. Um you know, had a few interactions with him here and there, but but nothing along the lines of what you had with him or, a, you know, a Bill Plasky or a Mark Heisler would, ha would have had with him. Um, and in some ways, I think that was good because it allowed me to be at once familiar with the story here in, in the Lower Marion, Philadelphia community. And it allowed me to kind of take a step back and look at that story from a different sort of perspective, right? Like it would have been easy to get tunnel vision on the basketball or tunnel vision on certain, you know, other aspects of his life. And um, there were parts of that existence that I wanted to flesh out and dive more deeply into, you know, the history of Lower Marion. And what was he stepping into when he came back to the community? What was the community really like? Is it all just, 
you know, people named Spencer and Buffy who have <laughs> old money? Or is there another aspect of this community that really treasured having Kobe there because of the history in this community? And I think um, in some ways, not in every way, but in some ways, the fact that I didn't know Kobe as well as somebody else was an advantage in, in writing the book. Uh, and then, of course, the other advantage is just that you know as well as anyone or better than anyone um, the very complicated and difficult relationship that Kobe had with Philadelphia at large, right? Kobe versus Allen Iverson, Lakers versus Sixers, the 2001 finals, but also Kobe and what he, uh, the, the image he projected and what, they, what, what he appeared to be to people versus what Iverson was to Philly and all this. There's a lot of that stuff in the book too. And if people, if you're curious about that aspect of it, I mean, Kobe gets booed upon winning MVP of, of the All-Star game in Philadelphia, booed by, and, and he was in or near tears, as I recall. Um, I missed, I didn't, I didn't attend that particular one, but I remember watching it on TV. Um, that's a complicated relationship too, but it goes to, what Lower Marion is and that community that he stepped into, you know, and, and, and all the other elements and perceptions and images. Uh, so there's a lot of that. It's really rich stuff and people should go read it for that um, as well. But I, I want to end because we're going to wrap up, but I do want to end on this note. You mentioned toward the end that you did reach out to his parents, to Pam and Joe and to his sisters, that they all declined understandable they've probably declined just about everything um and, and and for years because there was a strain in the relationship so a a a, a jumbled kind of question here mike to end with um which is just uh, bad reporter etiquette here but i'm curious about two things one is do you have any sense of and maybe it's impossible without having spoken to them because they don't want to to, to address it any sense of whether Kobe and his family ever found any kind of, of, of peace or reconciliation with each other after the strains they went through. And I know that that's a long, complicated thing to throw at the end of a podcast. But then secondarily to that, I understand why they would say no to the book, but I'm curious if you have any sense of through channels or anything else, how they view um, this book. Because of all the books that have been written about him, I feel like this one the like from a family's perspective, it, it captures so much of the richness of their family and how close they truly were before that that chasm happens during Kobe's career. And I and I, I actually I actually think you know you know the, the fa this is a, this is a book that the family I think would a book the family would embrace. But anyway, any sense of of how they viewed this project or or may view the book or whether do you know if they might even have have seen it by now? Um, and any sense of of whether there was a reconciliation before um, to the reconciliation? First of all, thank you for that. Um, for, to the reconciliation part, I don't know. I think I've I've heard things like everybody else has that they were working towards that. Um, and and I've heard a little bit that Vanessa uh, has some kind of connection with uh sharia bryant kobe the older of kobe's two older sisters um but i don't know that that's you know progressing in any regard i don't know uh as far as joe and pam uh reaction to the book or knowing about the book i, I know they're aware that i was writing the book i heard through um a close family friend um the one family member who i did interview for the book was john cox kobe's cousin who was almost like his younger brother they basically grew up together um, and from Sonny Vaccaro, um, who obviously signed Kobe to Adidas back in 96. Um, through them, I know that Joe and Pam are aware of the book. Um, I have not heard from them yet. I don't know what their reaction is yet. It's, it's, it's funny you would ask. On Monday night, I got an email that was unsigned from someone saying, 
uh, dear Mike, um, would love for you to send uh, an autographed copy of the book. Uh, Pam and I are very pleased with it, and we wish you all the best. And I thought it was from Joe Bryant. Turns out it was from Sonny Vaccaro, whose wife is named Pam as well. Hmm. Um, and but my initial reaction in seeing that was relief, just to know that they had seen it and they were okay with it. Um, I mean, my feeling is, and I said this in the book, and I'm sure you feel the same way. I, I, as far as I know, Joe and Pam have not spoken publicly at all about Kobe's death. And from a pure journalism repertorial perspective, I'm glad for that. It wasn't as if they spoke to ESPN or another, you know, Oprah or something like that. And I couldn't get them, you know, that they were talking and I couldn't get them. I would have looked at that as a, as a failure. Um, but from a pure personal human perspective, if they never want to speak to me about this and I never hear from them, however they react to Kobe's death, I understand it. And it would be obscene for me to, to think otherwise. Yeah, no. And, and which makes total sense. Um, it was just that one, you know, it's that strand that's always hanging out there. I think yep. for all of us who have, who have, you know, written about Kobe over the years and about the family, it's just, you know, it was a, it, it felt like, you know, the, 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 the tragedy during his life was what happened within the family. Um, still sad to, to read about some of those details, even in, in going through your book. Um, the book is wonderful. Um, I'm sure the podcast is fantastic. If you want to hear Kobe in his own voice at the time that he is, uh, it, it, it's during his rookie season, you said, right? In it's uh, high school, high school, senior year of high school yeah. and rookie season with the Lakers. Yeah. Yeah. So the podcast is I Am Kobe. And the book, of course, is The Rise, Kobe Bryant and the Pursuit of Immortality. Uh, both of those things brought to us by Mike Sielski, who has done a wonderful job with this book. Mike, congrats again on the book, on all of it. Um, it's fantastic. And uh, I know you've got many more of these to do, so I'll, I'll let you go. But thank you so much for spending the time. Howard, I hope they're all as enjoyable and insightful as this one. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. Thank you. Okay, that's it for today's show. My thanks again to Mike Sielski, who, by the way, you can also catch on SI's great new podcast, Sports Illustrated Weekly, next Wednesday, where he and host John Gonzalez will talk about Kobe's high school days in Philadelphia. Sielski, of course, and John Gonzalez are both Philly guys, so a whole different perspective you can enjoy on Sports Illustrated Weekly. That will be next Wednesday. Go get your copy of the book, The Rise, Kobe Bryant, and the Pursuit of Immortality. Go check out the accompanying podcast, I Am Kobe. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Shelby Royston, and thank you all for listening. Remember, you can hear Chris Mannix and me every Tuesday on The Crossover with all the latest NBA chatter. And then on Fridays, it's me and a guest. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to The Crossover wherever you get your podcasts. Go subscribe to the Sports Illustrated Podcasts channel on YouTube and hit me with all your feedback on Twitter at Howard Beck. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. 
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.